This is Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NEEDTECH, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Welcome to Transmission Interrupted from NEEDTECH. Hello, and welcome to Transmission Interrupted with me, Jill Morgan from Emory University Hospital in Atlanta, and Trish Tennell from New York Health and Hospitals Bellevue. Trish, how are you? I'm doing great, Jill. It's really great to be back with you. Yeah, thanks, Trish. I'm glad to be here, too. I have to tell you, I think like most healthcare people, I am pretty much over COVID. But we're going to be talking about a report today that caught our eye that comes out of the CDC. And it was in the news for a while, and we think it's a really important topic. I'm pretty much over COVID myself. It's been 20 months, but COVID is the gift that keeps on giving. Just when you think you've turned the corner, you turn around and you see what it's left in its path. And right now, what's left in its path is the hidden cost of COVID. Yeah, and we're going to be talking about a report that came from the National Healthcare Safety Network, which is the CDC system for tracking, among other things, Healthcare-Associated Infections, or HAIs. And this reporting system is used by nearly all of the 37,000 or so hospitals, nursing homes, dialysis centers, surgery centers across the country. And we're going to talk about why this report is important in just a minute. But just to give you a little bit of a reference point, the direct medical costs of these healthcare-acquired infections is estimated to be about $28 billion a year. Oh, no, Jill. Here we go again, back with the numbers. Since we're talking about numbers, let's talk about the year 2007. In 2007, Medicare noticed that 60% of the cost they incurred came from hospital-acquired infections. These originally were all paid by Medicare, but in 2009, this changed and the cost was brought back to the hospitals. So the hospitals would end up paying for these infections. It helped hospitals increase their efforts in implementing changes that would decrease hospital-acquired infections. So from 2009 to 2019, we saw ventilator-acquired incidents, pressure ulcers, surgical site infections, and infections that were due to indwelling catheters, both central lines and Foley, all started to decrease. And we were happy. Not only did it give us great outcomes financially, it gave our patients great outcomes. They were able to go home earlier. They didn't get as sick. They didn't have to go to rehab. And it also changed our flow of work. Making sure that the lines were maintained ensured a decrease in infection rates and treatment. It also decreased how many critical ill patients they had to take care of. So I want to emphasize what Trish just said, that these declining numbers were because hospitals had put in place all sorts of really concentrated efforts and implemented a lot of patient care tasks that get done by nurses and other patient care techs that require time. Things like oral care on a ventilated patient every four hours, checking and documenting the dressing on a central line, doing catheter care, things that get documented all the time. And so those take a tremendous amount of time to make happen. So in order to get those numbers to go down, it took a lot of effort. Some of the quality improvements that the hospitals were able to do was to dedicate a team of healthcare professionals to go around and monitor these lines. 
They monitored when lines were put in, if the patient still needed it, assured that dressings were changed, and the infection rates started to go down. And Jill, you know what happened? Let me guess. COVID. COVID. So we might be over COVID psychologically. But what happened is that not only did the downward trend of these infections reverse, but we've seen a sharp increase in many of these critical care interventions that can lead to infections. So things like a central line, that's like a big IV. We're not talking about the little ones you might get in your hand or your forearm. We're talking about this large IV that goes in typically your neck or your chest or even your groin. And when something like that gets infected, it can cause a massive bloodstream infection, really difficult to treat. We're also talking about things like catheter-associated infections or cauties. And those are things like when you have a urinary catheter, and we're really good about taking those out whenever we can, but when you have bed-bound patients who are also on a ventilator, you don't want them to stay wet. You don't want to impair their skin integrity. You might need to really monitor their urine output. And then we have things like ventilator-associated events. Those are the things that are consequences of having that plastic tube down your throat. And these numbers reversed the downward trend and, in fact, went up tremendously. So in the report we're talking about today, we're highlighting three specifically kinds of infections. Clapses, the central line-associated bloodstream infections. Nationally, those numbers are up 47%. And then what we call cauties, catheter-associated urinary tract infections, are up 18%. And there's been a 44% increase in ventilator-associated events. Those things that we try to prevent by doing things like oral care and elevating the head of your bed. So these patients, some of them COVID patients, some of them not COVID patients, they're in the hospital for prolonged periods of time. They've got all these life-saving interventions. And these things are important, right? These help keep people alive. So they're necessary, and yet they carry these risks with them. So we reverse the downward trend, and now we've got this huge increase. Right. But one of the increases we saw at the time, Jill, was an increase of hospitalizations. And with this increase in hospitalizations came an increase in ICU admissions. You guys all remember seeing on the news how ICU beds were at a shortage. All these lines and tubes Jill's talked about, we see a lot in the intensive care units. And numbers went up. People doubled their census. But at the time, they were unable to double their staff. So workloads increased. So... Nurses, doctors, patient care associates would bundle their care so they were able to go into the room, do care needs of the patient, and then move on to the next patient. So it was a lot of work. Also, one of the things we did at the time was we were able to prone patients. You guys remember that proning is turning a patient on their belly that helps with their respiratory status. But when you turn them on their belly, you can't see their dressings. You can't see their Foley catheter. These dressings get pulled. They get ripped. Foley catheters pull. There's secretions that could fall on them. And remember, patients with COVID had a lot of temperatures. So they'd sweat and they'd sweat these dressings off. And sometimes these patients stayed on their abdomen about 15 hours before they were able to be turned. So that's another factor of possibly why these rates went So not only did we reverse the downward trend, but we've seen a huge increase in financial cost. But it's just not financial cost, Jill. It's emotional costs because patients are in the hospital longer. They could have been permanently or temporarily disabled and deaths associated with hospital-acquired infections 
increased. And the emotional costs leaked out into our staff because they were stressed. They had a lot of patients to take care of. They had a lot of lines. And some of them were even doing new procedures they hadn't done before. So we see it everywhere. So yeah, today we hope to talk about some of the strategies that individual hospitals and units were able to put in place or have been thinking about putting in place since these numbers came out. The numbers we've been talking about so far in the report are all the national numbers, and they may not apply to any specific hospitals individually, but everybody has things that they can do to help get their numbers back down. So we have several brilliant people with us today. We're really excited about getting to see some of our friends from across the country and talk about this hidden cost of COVID and what positive steps we can do to reverse these trends. You know, Jill, I'm really happy also to have our friends and colleagues here to hear what they have to say about it. So with us today, I'm excited to introduce some people that have become friends of ours over the last few years. And I'm going to start with Krista Argonchona from Providence Sacred Heart. Hi, everyone. I am Krista Argonchona. I'm a nurse at Providence Sacred Heart Medical Center in Spokane, and my role includes managing our special pathogens program, as well as managing our infection prevention department at five hospitals here in our service area. And I'm happy to be here. No small task. Five hospitals. That's pretty impressive, Krista. Meredith, tell us a little bit about you. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Meredith Fahey. I work at Mass General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm an infection preventionist, and I also serve in our as our biothreats infection preventionist and work with our Center for Disaster Medicine team as well. Very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Jill, it is so exciting to be with our friends again. And I'd like to introduce my friend, Carrie Billman. Carrie? Hi, I'm Carrie Billman. I work at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. I am a senior infection preventionist here. I'm also the infection prevention program manager for our biocontainment unit and the program manager for infection prevention for the Johns Hopkins Health, in addition to also being the hospital lead for CLABSI, e, so Central Line Associated Bloodstream Infection Prevention on the East Baltimore campus. And to round things out, we have a great friend and colleague, Jennifer Garland. Hi, I'm Jennifer Garland. I'm at Cedar sinai Medical Center. I'm also an infection preventionist and a hospital epidemiologist, currently the Special Pathogens Program Manager and involved with our, with our team in the medical ICU, which is housing our Special Pathogens Unit. And I work um, a lot with our colleagues over there. And lately, I've been involved with them talking about HAIs. This is very exciting. We got a lot of people from a lot of time zones here today, Jill. Yes, we do. And one of the things that we want to talk about today, we've discussed, been talking about this National Healthcare Safety Network report. And I just want to know what it feels like at your facility when you look at your patient loads, when you look at your infection rates over this last year and a half. We talked about the national data, but how, what does it felt like or looked like at your facility? And we're going to go around and, and ask people these answers. Then I'd like to just see if we can play off some of this. If some if somebody mentions something that piques your interest, we'll circle back. So actually, Jennifer, let's go ahead and just start back with you. Sure. So over the last year, the beginning of the pandemic was really we had a lot of uncertainty just as everyone else did across the country. We were dealing with one of the first SARS-CoV-2 cases in the country. Initially, that led to our team being activated and really being models 
and showing the other staff members how to confidently take care of a patient. There wasn't as much fear involved with that. But as we transitioned in incorporating the rest of the hospital and taking care of these patients, and then that moving into a surge, we started to see a lot of burnouts that began to really show its effects on our staff. And anytime we had staffing issues, we anticipated seeing safety issues around patient care, and that's true for medical medication errors, falls, and then also hospital-acquired infections. And unfortunately, we did see that increase in our hospital. And really what we've been doing over the last couple of years is trying to address the burnout and the staffing issues. And um, many of those things are things that we still do not have resolution for right now. So it's really important for us to reach out to each other and hear what kind of successes people are having when they're doing um, this kind of work and trying to yeah, move excellent. this forward. Thank you, Jennifer. I think it's interesting. You've already mentioned something that I know has been on Trish and I's mind, which is this potential correlation between staffing and safety issues. And I'm glad that you brought up the, the idea that this extends to other safety issues, not just the ones that we're talking about today in this report. Thanks. Carrie? Yeah. So I feel like on these Baltimore campus here at Johns Hopkins, we had that all hands on deck kind of mentality with COVID. Everything got shunted towards caring for the COVID patients, you know, developing protocols and, and what was safest and how to deal with that, that everything else took a backseat. All of the best practices took a backseat. All of the safety measures that are built into our everyday took a backseat. We're already an academic medical institution, so we already have to re-educate on a consistent basis. But then we weren't even really able to do that with the amount of focus that was on COVID. And then as the numbers came down and everybody's starting to pay attention to you know, what happened during COVID as far as the other patients and the COVID patients themselves and the numbers of infections everywhere from pressure ulcers to falls to clabsies and claudies and, and C. diff, those types of things that we usually track very closely and have things in place to prevent. And then it became that whole kind of mentality of, well, it was because of COVID. COVID did it. And it was this broad COVID blame <laughs> as opposed to like what actually caused the problem. And to Jennifer's point, staffing, certainly we needed to pay attention to that. But what were some of the other things that we came out of it? We assumed that all of the patients that had these increased numbers of central line associated bloodstream infections were COVID patients. And they were, they were just there while we had the COVID patients. And it just meant that people were paying less attention to the staffing. There was the ratios weren't where they should be. When we did have COVID positive patients, especially in the beginning, people tried to minimize the amount of times they went in and out of the room, not only for safety purposes, but to conserve PPE. So we had patients who had lines while proned in the middle of their chest that nobody looked at for days. So it was those types of things. It was trying to, as we are attempting to come out on the other side of, of the COVID waves is trying to get people to see beyond it's COVID and look at what didn't we do during those surges that caused these infections so that when they happen again, we can make sure some of that stuff is still in place. Because that was really what everybody just assumed all of these infections, all of the C. diff, all of the clabsies, all of the things happened to the COVID patients, completely forgetting all the other patients that were in the hospital for various other reasons. Yeah, I think that's a great point that the risk of COVID is not just 
for the people with COVID. It's that the risk from COVID extends to anyone who might be hospitalized or needing to be hospitalized in a situation where hospitals are so short of everything, rooms, staff, stuff, the whole nine yards. You know, and I also think we need to look at what we've implemented quickly during COVID. Um, proning teams, as Carrie mentioned, some people never prone till COVID. So they didn't know that we'd have to check lines a little more frequently, that people would be on their abdomens during the time that lines were supposed to be checked. Um, they had central line teams, they had dialysis teams, things like that, that were taking care of not just COVID patients, but the general populations. Now we can look back and see what checks and balances we need to maintain these low levels of infection rates. Yeah, let's finish up with Meredith and then go to Krista with what's this look like in Boston and then what it's look like on the other side of the country over in Spokane. Great. Thanks so much. It's so great to get together and be able to talk about this because even though our facilities aren't right next door to each other, we've all had such a similar experience. Like when I'm listening to you guys describe what your facility was experiencing and feeling, we were having the same stuff over in Boston happening. When you're talking about the proning, that was something that I had noted to bring up because that was definitely a question in my mind when we had these patients that were so sick that were proning in those, the normal activities that we would do to care for these patients for their lines and the other things that they had going on. Was everything being done perfectly? Probably not. That's definitely been something that's been in the back of my mind and how that has impacted these rates. Thinking back to the very beginning initially, when the first report came out of China and then the West Coast, you know, we had some time to prepare and to train our staff who we expected to be caring for these patients, our frontline staff and our, our staff and our special pathogens unit. And it, it just made me reflect on the amount of energy and effort and collaboration that our staff experienced at the beginning of this training each other and nurses helping nurses and nursing helping doctors and you know, our environmental staff and housekeeping staff helping each other. And it just really was such a collaborative teamwork feel at the beginning. And then when our first surge hit us really hard, it was it was really incredible to see the amount of teamwork that continued to persist during that time. It was really just really impressive. And that's something that I sort of reflect on and feel really proud to be working with the colleagues that I'm working with here. But, you know, as time went on and things like Jennifer, as you were speaking to, staffing issues were happening and burnout was happening. And Carrie, as you touched on, our normal practices weren't able to be maintained. You know, it was like everyone was blaming COVID, but there was definitely underlying things that weren't happening to prevent hospital-acquired infections. So this is definitely the time to look back, see where we fell down and where breakdowns happened, and then try to look forward for those opportunities where we can continue to improve on, learn, and grow. Excellent. Thanks. Krista. So I think we've all, as has been highlighted, we've all experienced some of the many different feelings and situations across this last year. At times it's been challenging, certainly exhausting, confusing at times, the uncertainty of when it would end. Oh, here's comes another surge and like what number of surge are we on yet? And as that has continued to kind of evolve over this year, as our HAI numbers started to increase, then it was just so disheartening because as Meredith just described, 
how hard everybody worked, how hard everybody came together to do teamwork and to develop just-in-time training and to learn to pivot when the guidance changed. You have everybody working so hard and then to find out that your Cotty and Clabsy numbers are climbing, it was discouraging for the staff, but then disheartening for the infection prevention team who is now found that their workload that used to reportable cases took up this much time now took up almost their entire day. And how do you have the bandwidth to put into those preventative efforts to get those HAIs back down? And also for the the nurse managers and the leaders of all these teams that have put in so much effort over the last several years. And I think we would probably all say we'd seen a good decrease in a lot of those healthcare-associated infections. And so those parts, but just the disheartening part just added to the the fatigue for sure. So really grateful to have this conversation and learn from everybody. Yeah, I really want to circle back to that, Krista, a phrase you used uh, about bandwidth, because I think that it's sort of applicable on a bunch of different levels here, right? So certainly somebody like you who's taking care of infection prevention at a number of facilities, you only have so many hours in the day and you've now got so many things to focus on. And your managers at each of your facilities, your nurse managers on each of these floors, everybody only has so much time to give. And here, all of these things were stretched. But that also applies to the individual staff members who are caring for these patients. And when the demand increases so sharply, something has to give And I think that one of the things that I heard certainly is staff were so exhausted and so stressed that getting everything done and how you define everything, right? All the important stuff done in a day, which is maybe just giving people their meds, getting somebody turned, making sure their ventilator stuff was done. At some point, it felt like I can't add anything else to their list, right? So I guess I'm asking. How do we elevate the things that we know of are important for these safety concerns for patients? How do we elevate that so that when a nurse thinks about their shift, it stays at the top, right? That it stays with, I need to give my meds on time or as close on time as humanly possible, and I have to look at that central line, or and I have to do Foley care. Because I think it's easy when you're that stressed We all do mental triage, right? And things fall away. And how do we get that back to a a place of prominence for the folks that are having to do that care? Well, I think that's a challenging part for sure. I think we're all trying to navigate what's the best way to engage with all of everybody who has a hand in this process. And so for us here at Sacred Heart, We've been trying to work really hard at, we have a lot of new infection preventionists on our team. And so it's been, which I I see some heads nodding. I'm sure that's the case across the country. So really working on establishing those relationships and establishing that presence on the units in working closely with managers, with bedside nurses, and just instead of being somebody in the office answering the phone or sending an email to say, oh, you got another Cotty. How do you really engage in those conversations one-on-one to facilitate that collaborative process? We're all on the same team. And how can we be a best resource to you? Let us know what your challenges are and how do we come together to address. 
super challenging, but kind of back to basics and really establishing those relationships we have found to be really important moving forward. Jennifer? I think that's a really good comment, Krista. That's very similar to what we've been trying to do as well, trying to increase the visibility on the floor, getting back to resuming our weekly line rounds, thinking of scrubbing the hub as part of giving the med correctly, CHG bathing daily, like Jill mentioned, like that can fall off of the triage list if you're going to triage. But thinking of that as, again, like, that's a medication you want to give. And then explaining like why it's helpful, like CHD bathing has a cumulative effect of decreasing bacteria on the skin. And again, like things that fell off on daily rounds, which was, you know, addressing is this line or catheter necessary every day? I know that those are other things that we've tried to address. Those are both great points. And I, I totally agree with everything that you guys have shared. One of the things I enjoy most is getting out to the floors and out to the units and talking with staff and asking them how their experience has been. And as Krista, as you mentioned, asking them why they're not able to do things and what's happening and what is their experience and talking with them and, and hearing what they're sharing really helps me sort of get creative and think of ways to help them think through how to triage things and and also to help them understand the why. You know, as Jennifer, you're explaining why do we do CHD bathing and why do we scrub the hub? It's so important for people to understand the, like I mentioned, the why of what we're doing so that it's intentional and that they understand really the importance of these interventions. I think it's very refreshing to hear everybody with those same struggles and I think there's kind of two ways that we've approached it. One is that, you know, once again, when COVID first hit, it was easy to just say, do the bare minimum, right? Do the things to keep the patients alive. Do what we have to do to keep you safe and the patient alive. And that's not how we approach it anymore, which is is, is helpful. And especially with the amount of turnover in all areas of the hospital, it's something that we've continued to reinforce with the the experienced staff that we do have that as they onboard new members to make sure that that's not the messaging we're giving anymore that COVID is just part of the diagnosis and these best practices, the idea that just because they rolled in with a COVID pneumonia, it doesn't mean they get a line and a Foley and all the things and every antibiotic known to mankind, right? Because they might develop some bacterial infection that we're not sure ever existed beforehand that might be related to COVID, maybe. <laughs> but that's the type of thing that everybody was fine with because no one was paying attention. And now that we have you know, the data and we know that things are a little bit better, I feel like that's part of what we've done is, is that reinforcement. Obviously, education is always an ongoing process in all realms and for all roles, but making sure that we're, the messaging is out there correctly. And then the other side of it is making sure that, you know, Christy, you said you had a bunch of new infection preventionists. I also have a bunch of new infection preventionists, and they're coming from a bunch of different backgrounds. Um, infection prevention is it, it's a ever-evolving field. It's not all nurses anymore. And, and for the betterment of the field. But then what happens is you have, you know, new staff that are, they know what the right way to do something is and they know what makes things better, but they aren't coming from the experience of workflow and, and making sure that it actually works. So you can tell, you know, at bedside staff that this is what works to prevent infection, but to Meredith's point, they don't know why it's important, what they're actually preventing. And then, you know, if it doesn't work with the staff's workflow, they're not going to do it. So then you have to get to that creative point where you're like, okay, so I want you to do CHG for every patient here, even the prone ones, then how do we make that happen? How can we coordinate to make sure that it's actually occurring? I think it's so important. 
I think something else that we're that I'm experiencing as we've talked about staff being burnt out, but also lots of new staff joining, I find that people are just it's just a sensitive, difficult time for everybody. And giving constructive feedback has been a challenge of mine. And how do you, you know, say things kindly and so that people can learn and not like offend them and have them never want to talk to you again because you've commented on their practice or something. But really trying to do all of this in a thoughtful really kind, respectful way. And it's it's definitely a challenge when you're trying to communicate information quickly and so that keeping patient safety at the forefront. But it's definitely something that I, I've been feeling as we're at this point in time. Well, I, I can say from our end, one of the things that we're attempting to do is get beyond the policing side of things. So that kind of feeling of, you know, the hand hygiene police, the the people who are there just to tell you that you're doing something incorrectly or that you're doing something harmful and really making sure we're partnering, coming to the like safety meetings, the the staff meetings, the cusp meetings and saying like, okay, so here's what I've observed. It's not working well. How can I help you come up with something that's going to work? So really making sure that you're part of the team at a unit level, you know, an area level, um, I think is it, it can help and really, you know, getting back out on the units with the staff is, is certainly goes right along with that. But that's one of the the best strategies we've been able and just being very aware and mentioning with every breath about the fact that we know they're overloaded. We know they're understaffed. We know they're exhausted. And, and we recognize that. So how knowing that we're all exhausted, how can we all be exhausted together and still keep people safe? I love that phrase. Knowing we're all exhausted, how can we keep people safe. You know, that's exactly the point. It's, it's like something's got to give. Are there other things that could give that aren't patient safety related? Yeah, absolutely. To continue on with the question you asked, Jill, about mitigation steps, you know, there's two things we've implemented with our team that we found to be beneficial within the last several months, especially with new infection preventionists onboarding in our hospital. They've been attending our unit-based councils regularly. Even many of them are still virtual, but it's been a great way for them to just establish those relationships on their team to present data about HAIs for that particular unit. And then just to have a question and answer session, whether it's about COVID or whether it's about anything else, that's just been a great forum for communication. And then we've, we've revamped our HAI investigation process and incorporated it into our serious safety event process with our quality and safety team. And our infection prevention team has developed a process and then a form that goes with it for the, the IP does the investigation once the HAI is identified after our surveillance IP notifies us. And then they connect with the nurse manager. The nurse manager does their investigation process, and then we schedule a follow-up meeting a couple weeks later to go through what everybody found, identify next steps, and then schedule another meeting out, you know, to follow up again. And just having that consistent connection, and it's just a coming together and figuring out, is this a, a one-off with just a couple of staff, or is this a more systemic problem in the unit, or you know, what really identifying what the core problem is with each of those investigations has been really helpful just to, I think it was Carrie saying, getting away from the policing part and just really getting back to that we're one big team and everybody's stretched, but 
but everybody wants the same thing. Everybody wants great outcomes for our patients. And so how do we navigate this process to get there with what it seems to be our new normal? Absolutely. And Jennifer, I'm going to let you finish that. And then I want to circle back to a couple of things that have been mentioned so far. Oh, sure. Yeah, I, I totally agree with Carrie and Krista. The partnership with the units has been very helpful for us. One example is around our, our Canada Oris outbreak that we had, really involving the units from the very beginning to the end to help get that under control has been really, I, I think that went a lot smoother than we thought letting them come up with some of the ideas for how to control it, how to manage it, and to the point where they made it, like, they they wrote up, like, an abstract and set it to a research conference. Like, they had done it themselves, and we weren't involved at all. So I think that that's been a useful strategy from, from our part and letting them own that and be more engaged from an infection prevention standpoint. I love hearing the words about relationships and empowerment and, you know, engagement and things like that. I think one of the special challenges through COVID have also been maintaining those kinds of relationships and soft skills with a bunch of new people. And on the one hand, you have new infection preventionists, what you've heard people talk about as IPs. And on the other hand, many of our facilities have had a large influx of travel nurses. We may not have a relationship with these people. We may not recognize them. They don't know us when we go out to the units. And then we also have a lack of familiarity with our protocols, with our devices, with our kits for performing some of these tasks. And I just wonder if y'all could talk for just a second about that lack of familiarity on all those levels and how that might impact things. Because those, when I think about how we future-proof ourselves, right, it's what can we put in place now so that when we do have another influx of travelers or when this kind of surge happens again, we know we've got a checklist of things to put in place because, because that might help us move forward. Well, I think this is a challenging new area for all of us to figure out how do you navigate that. I think partnering with our professional development team you know, for us to really identify, we're a very large organization. So a, a lot of our departments are shared services across seven states. And so really identifying what infection prevention education do these travelers get in the one eight-hour day that they're oriented to our facility? And then having a good knowledge of what they get, but then how do we educate them on what our CLAPSI bundle compliance is and our CAUTI bundle compliance? And I don't know that I have a, a great answer to that one yet, but certainly one that it's an identified gap in need. And then I love your idea, Jill, of like what kind of tools or checklists can we put in place to have just-in-time education tools for when we do have a new influx of staff? Because we've not just had individual travelers, we've had like large groups of 60 nurses come in and that's just a lot of people to try to reach. Yeah, we've had, obviously, everyone has that issue. And, you know, it, it used to be you'd have maybe one unit that was struggling, right? That would have a little bit of an exodus and you would have, you know, a bunch of travelers there. So it's a whole different ballgame when they are so widespread. They're in every part of the hospital and and every role that you could possibly imagine. And I, I don't have a great answer for it either. Would love someone here to have an amazing answer that we could use. One thing that we attempted to do, certainly when we had a little bit of a lull in the summer, things were, were getting better. 
what we've attempted to do is reach out to each unit leadership to develop a, it's similar to a checklist of unit specific things. So the big things like, you know, okay, we have lots of central lines here. This is a cardiac unit. You're going to see swans, you know, something very specific to the patient population or the unit practices that they can orient their traveler to. So even if they can't get on board with our hospital-based protocols and policies, can they at least get on board with the things that are very specific to the patient populations they're going to be dealing with, be it pediatric surgery, et cetera. And, and that has helped a bit to, to get them at least up to the, um, the levels. We've had some units that were very high performing with their infection rates on all ends. And so any sort of infections is just horrifying to them, which is good. But then they, they didn't know how to get back to that with the large number of travelers. So this has definitely helped the increased pericare, different types of lines. Patients that are confused and fall all the time, you know, whatever it, it may be. Yeah, this is a huge challenge. I'd say that similar to what Carrie just described is, you know, the challenges with standardizing the nursing orientation and the unit orientation. And what we've tried to do is just really partner with the nurse educators. And since that's, you know, one of their predominant responsibilities. But again, that's incredibly difficult lately with everyone being spread so thin and us also being involved in all these exposure outbreaks and, and things like that. This is this is definitely a challenge and um, there's years and years of work that we have to do on this. Yeah, I would just say that I, I agree with all the points you guys have made thus far and thanks for sharing what you guys have done. I'm taking notes and thinking of ideas to bring back to our facility. Yeah, we're definitely, you know, focusing and, and trying to do a lot of work on standardization of orientations and educations and really pointing people and making them aware of where their resources are so that maybe if we're not there to answer a particular question, but they know that, hey, this information's on our infection control website and I know how to navigate there so I can find it. That's what we've been working on as well. Excellent. Thank you, guys. So one of the things I want to just uh, mention and my focus has been ICU for the last, I don't know, 15 years of my career. But one of the interesting factoids in this report was that the ventilator-associated events reported were up, of, of course, in ICU. And I say, of course, not because it's an okay thing, but because, you know, again, we're talking about some of the things that happened during COVID in surges and isolation and staffing shortages uh, that might have contributed to that. There was a 60% increase in ventilator-associated events on the wards, in med surge floors. And I'm wondering if part of that, and, and I don't know what the cause of this is, so if you've done some root cause analysis, I'd love to hear it, but is part of that the rapidity with which we had to move patients because of the crush for beds in ICU? Is part of that that, that things happen in ICU and didn't show up until people were on the wards? Is it like, what What do we think went on there? I'm, I'm not sure what to pin that on, if anything, or if anybody has an idea about that. Maybe a combination of everything you've mentioned. <laughs> yeah, I have some, and some of our hospital epidemiology nurses have mentioned that, you know, there's something really interesting physiologically with the COVID treatments, just kind of wiping away everything except yeast and fungus. So staff can be prevented, but some of these yeasts and fungi are like, I don't know, like that is, I don't know, that like there's almost like a specific category that needs to be added for, you know, for these COVID cases because, and I know that that's in some of the reporting systems like Theradoc, they already have a COVID specific category, but there's just some conversations like that happening in our facility. I don't know if anyone else is having these kind of conversations. I think you also have 
staff that are very, I, I mean, at least at our facility, we attempt to not silo, but we silo our patients in, in departments and in unit base that are, you know, we have a surgery unit that just takes care of urology, you know, one that just takes care of ortho procedures, you know, one that does abdominal, et cetera, you know, thoracic. And all of a sudden we are just trying to find a bed with a level of care that supports this patient. So you have ICUs, which are certainly qualified to take care of the sickest patients, but they've never taken care of a medically ill ARDS patient. It's just not in their their norm. And then once you get down and out of an ICU level, you have general care inpatient areas that were used to taking one type of population. All of a sudden, they've got cardiac patients and they're like, I don't know what to do with a cardiac patient. I have no idea. Colon surgery? Okay. I usually take care of knees and hips. Like, I'm not, I have no idea. Like, you know, they, once you start specializing your staff, then they get these patients that are just out of their wheelhouse. And so, you know, the vents, you know, to, to your point, you know, patients on ventilators probably got pushed out of IMC quicker. They probably pushed out of ICU to IMC quicker. And the staff that's caring for them may not be used to what they're supposed to look for, for, you know, the evolving infectious process of the, the respiratory system. So I, I agree. I think it's probably a lot of all the things being everybody just trying to, you know, find a place for each patient. And it might not have been what we normally would have ideally placed them at. Go ahead, Jennifer. I I don't know, going back to ventilator-associated events and cotties and collapses and assessing, like, is the line or catheter, like, needed? Do they need to be intubated? If they're doing better, there's, like, maybe some hesitancy in taking these things out in case the patient takes a turn south, which is also, like, super common in this population, for COVID patients anyway. Maybe not in the general population, but a reluctance to, like, take the stuff out because they seem to be doing better and then only to have them, like, crump and then they have to be reintubated and have the line put back in and so that's kind of come up with a couple of cases when we've done our RCAs. So there's a little bit of hesitancy to just like take the stuff off, even if they do seem to be doing better. I don't know if anyone else has noticed that. That's the just-in-case syndrome that comes along when we keep everything just-in-case because one out of 10 patients needs it. So just-in-case, we're going to leave them all. Yeah, we have seen those at our facility as well. And I think every time we have one of those cases, it probably makes it harder for the next patient to come off of everything because of the lived experience from the past situation. Carrie, I just wanted to make a comment on something you had said about, you know, nurses who and staff who are working on these units that are specialized and maybe not knowing how to care for the colon post-op patient because they always care for the knees and hips. And I'm just thinking about your idea, how you mentioned the checklist for travelers and almost expanding that just for these specialized units for all of our staff, because it is something that everybody's experienced and it, uh, our travelers as well as our staff as well. So it's a good idea. So I love this trajectory. I would love to spend just the last few minutes working together today talking about some of these strategic planning things, right? So thinking about moving forward, whether that's in another wave at your facility or, you know, and I hope it's not, but another wave across the country, or whether that's another pathogen, right? I mean, we are in the business of special pathogens, and I think we are always worried that it's going to be another pandemic flu or something, um, whatever the next thing is. And I, I, I want to just start a conversation with a couple things that have struck me as y'all have been talking that I think we need. So calls for future stuff. So one thing would be, I think somebody mentioned this idea of proning 
and how this might have affected some of these lines and drains and tubes. But I think, do we need research on the best practices for lines, drains, and tubes in prone patients? Like, are there better dressings? Are there better strategies? Are there better beds? Are there better times or things that we should put in place when we prone people? I heard scrubbing the hub as part of med administration, that maybe we need to re-indoctrinate that. I know not everybody's sort of using like the little caps were used for a while, but this idea of cleaning that hub before you access a lung. And then I've heard several things that are on this theme of familiarity, whether that's being familiar with your unit, with your hospital, with your hospital system and what your protocols are, whether that's opening a central line kit and knowing what you're going to find inside, right? Many of our facilities probably have specially made central line dressing kits, right, that we've specified what goes in them. But that means if, I, if I'm the nurse traveling, I don't know what I'm going to find when I open that kit. How does that change how I interact with those devices? What are the human factors pieces that go into this? So that's my short list. I want to hear from you guys what you would like, what you think we need to do, if it's a checklist, if it's a, something to put in place, education for travelers, you know, whatever you think is out there that's going to make this better. Yeah, I kind of want to jump on that, Jill. If there was another pandemic tomorrow, what would you say you would want implemented tomorrow? I would love to jump on the proning wagon. I would love for there to be more research. There's no studies. I did lit reviews every couple months trying to find literature on infection prevention in the prone patient, and it's it's really not out there. You know, it it's something that it, you can't provide the same type of care. Many facilities had proning teams. Do we need to look at who is on a proning team? Does there need to be a vascular access nurse on every proning team to look at lines, to change dressings when it's necessary? Because you have such a short window with each of these patients, depending on which way you're treating them. And, you know, the, the type of staff present is likely, you know, medical and, and respiratory. And, you know, do we need someone else whose sole purpose is to focus on the lines, the drains, and things like that. You know, make sure that that little bit of CHG around the, the site or on the front, those types of things that could be involved there. I really would love there to be more information on proning and more best practices related to the care of those patients in particular, not just your ARDS, but your prone ARDS. Yeah, and just to feed off of that proning concept, one thing that we talked about that we tried to do, but I think needs to be done much better is what's that checklist of to-dos before you prone somebody related to your devices, a central line or a Foley I'm thinking of in particular. If your proning team is constantly changing, so if you're mobilizing OR staff because you don't have surgeries in place, how do you educate them to say, this is what this means to truly assess the central line and if you identify this, what needs to be done? And same thing for the for the Foley. So, you know, in, in our world of special pathogens work where we have all found the value of checklists to be amazing because otherwise, how do you keep people on task with what they need to do with something you don't visit very frequently? Well, the same concept is true here. You could be having this different group of workers as your proning team. And so how do you educate them just in time? And so I think that's a, a great call out. And I think we just need a big red reset button. Like you just hit the big reset button and say, back to basics. How do we get back to basics for all of our staff? 
Krista, I could not agree more. I have this in my notes, starred and highlighted, getting back to basics and talking about hand hygiene, right? And what are we supposed to be doing hand hygiene and why are we doing hand hygiene? And it's such a basic thing, but it has such an impact. So, and so do many of our basic infection control principles and things that we do in interventions. And when I do education and talk with my staff, I talk a lot about standard precautions and assessing what people know about them and what do they need to know and how do, do they understand why we do all these things. And that's definitely something that we are working on. And I think if we had that reset button, I'd be hitting it as well. <laughs> also gloves, hand hygiene and glove changes because the COVID PPE screwed up everybody's idea of when they're supposed to change their gloves. Yes. Gloves, or what do they say? Gloves glued to the hand syndrome. It's protecting me. It's the only reason I'm wearing them, right? I love that. I love the back to the basics. I'm all about that. That's what we need. And that's what people have to understand. Nothing's any different taking care of a patient during a pandemic than you would on a normal day. They need the dressing change. They need mouth care. They need ventilator care, Foley care. This is just basic care that we needed to get back to. And we all know that during the surge, sometimes you couldn't do it, but nobody went back to that reset when things started to slow down a little bit. That would be kind of my message to people, to go back to that reset, back to the basics sooner rather than later. So I would love to just ask you guys if you have any last comments you'd like to make. You know, I really like this idea of sort of ending on a high note of, of things that you you like moving forward. What would your future you be happy that you had done now? You know, what can you put in place now to make things better in the future? I think that that's just all really good messages to get out there for other people. So just going around the horn sort of in the same order we started with. So Krista to Meredith to Jennifer to Carrie. Just anything else you want to say about this report, about your facility, about pandemic preparedness, about where you'd like to be headed? That's a loaded question for just a quick minute. I would say one of the things that I have thought of is our workforce, they are fatigued for sure, but they're committed to their patients. And giving them the data and the why as to why we're doing something so they have that scientific awareness and education of why are you asking me to do this again, Krista? If they have the answer to that, they're like all in. And so I think just going back to that, providing them with that data and the information and education that they need to get their buy-in. Agree, Krista. That has been really helpful with us dealing with our, with our staff. I would say that everybody wants to do what's best for the patient and to give them the rationale for how this helps them. And they want to do it. They're motivated to do it. That's a useful tool. Also, going back to basics, reminding them where the checklists are, where they live, where this job aid is, and it's universally accessible at 24 hours a day. There's no stupid question. It's here. You can find it. That's a resource that we developed for the pandemic but it's useful and important all the time. So maintaining that. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think the why certainly helps with motivation. Absolutely. I think um, something else that I'm, I'm thinking of and, you know, what can we put in place now and keep moving forward from me and my perspective is really, you know, our role as an infection preventionist as part of the care team 
And I think we've been highlighted throughout the pandemic and having our, you know, like we've talked about having our presence on the unit, being part of the care team, getting to know our staff so that they can come to us with questions. And as Jennifer, you said, no question is a stupid question. And having people really feeling comfortable to talk and engage with their infection preventionist about what they're seeing, questions they might have is just so important. I think moving forward and maintaining those relationships and bonds with our staff and, and having them recognize us as their partner, not as their policing them, you know, really as, as their teammate, as we work together for patient safety, which is really all of our ultimate goals. Yeah, I, I love the idea of partnering. I really think that's where the answers lie. It lies in being a part of the team, no matter which team you're talking about, making sure that we're offering to help as infection prevention. It's okay. I'm telling you, this is what's needed. I'm telling you, this is why we need it. How can I help make it happen? How can I help you with the workflow? You tell me what you can do. I'll tell you what I can do. And we'll figure out a way that it can be done the most, you know, safest way possible. Talking with each other like this is very helpful because, you know, even just for my, for doubt IP self, it's just soothing to know that everyone is, it's trying to figure out the same problems. And I think the last thing that I, I think is helpful and will continue to be helpful is making sure that we don't put all of this on nursing. This tends to be a big thing in, in all hospitals. Nurses have to do everything. We have to care for the patients. We have to clean. We have to take care of the families and, you know, just do all of the things. And so making sure that our providers are engaged with the pieces that they can help with and help reinforce and making sure that, you know, all levels of leadership on down to our bedside staff are engaged and helpful really kind of speaks to that being able to partner and become a team together. So our successes are all of our successes and our failures are all of our failures. It's something that we're going to continue to do moving forward as we focus on everything from hand hygiene to linen change to scrub the hub. <laughs> Carrie, thank you so much. Teamwork is a great place to kind of end this podcast and making sure everybody's involved. And the teamwork between you guys today was amazing. So I'd like to thank Carrie Billman, Jennifer Garland, Krista Arconchona and Meredith Fahey for being with us today on this edition of Transmission Interrupted. I know Jill and I had a great time and it was so much fun to hear your ideas and looking forward to you guys sharing your lists and best practices with us. Jill? Yeah, thank you. Everybody who's participated in this today has just been fantastic. I'm going to just say that I think that we do have a lot more work to do at a national level on some of these research questions, on some of these strategic questions, we want to do better pandemic preparation. And part of that is understanding that these events might be what happened during COVID, but we wanna keep them from becoming what happens with any pandemic, right? With any surge. We wanna nip this in the bud, as my mother would say, so that we don't end up being back here discussing Healthcare-associated infections going up after the next influenza surge, right? So whatever we do, making the next round of patient surge events safer. Thank you guys so much for being with us today. We look forward to just life resuming, life returning to normal, if it would, please. It's just been a pleasure to talk to you guys today. So thank you so much for being part of our podcast. We hope you'll join us for future episodes on a wide range of topics from healthcare worker safety, personal protective equipment, and more about infectious diseases of all kinds. If you have any questions for us or ideas for future shows, please contact us at info at or you can find us on the web at needtech.org backslash podcast 
where you can subscribe to future episodes and find more information on today's topic. We hope to see you next time on Transmission Interrupted. You've been listening to Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NeedTech, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Learn more at needtech.org.